and uh, it's good to be with you. I greet you in the name of Jesus this evening. <clears throat> I trust you had a good day with the Lord again. Thank you, Kent, for that very good devotions. I, uh, <clears throat> you know, I didn't always appreciate my church, and uh, partly because I don't like being told what to do. It's probably half of it. But I have come to really appreciate my fellow brothers in the church and my fellow ministry, too. The thing about the plural ministry, I think, brings a great strength to it. My wife was, we were talking actually a little bit this, this evening and talking about the difference of, in, in people in the church. There are, there are some that are deep thinkers that think through things quite a bit. And there are some that are very simple. And each has an aspect in the church. And different ministry will speak to different things. And I just look at it in my own, own ministry team, how each of us maybe can touch a different part of the church and uh, be an encouragement to it. I had to think of the verses there in Ephesians, as you're talking, Kent, about what God says. He says, when we put the church together, he says, he has given some apostles and some prophets and some evangelists and some pastors and teachers. For what purpose? For the perfecting of the saints, for the work of the ministry, and for the edifying of the body of Christ, till we all come in the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God unto a perfect man, unto the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, that we henceforth be no more children tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine and slight of men, cunning craftiness, whereby they lie in wait to deceive us. And so you see the beauty of the church right there. And each of us has our place, and uh, we encourage each other. And so hopefully I can be here as an encouragement, and we've been encouraged by being with you all and being get in your homes. It's just been a wonderful time for us here. We're already halfway through, so I don't know. I'm gonna, we're going we're gonna to miss it, but we uh, like to go back to our home church too, Kent, and just like you said there. So, <clears throat> Well, tonight I'd like to... Uh, take a look at one more man in the Bible that has been a real inspiration to me and into, in my life, especially as a young man, and uh, looking to find my way in life and trying to build some foundations in order to, on which to build my life. And I'd like to look tonight at the story of Joseph, <clears throat> an inspiration, I think, for many people and for myself included. He was one of only a few men in the Bible that where a large part of their life was recorded, there is nothing written that of bad in it. He was of a, nothing concerning that was written about him. And so I'd like to look, uh, Daniel was one of a, the other, another one that was, that was there. But I'd like to look here at the life of Daniel here tonight. If you want to turn in your Bibles, you can turn with me to Genesis chapter 50. It is the uh, last chapter of the first book of the Bible in the Old Testament. I heard a, one speaker say, he don't like to call it the Old Testament. It has a, an old sound to it. He calls it the less recent testament. So the, the less recent testament uh, in Genesis chapter 50. And I want to look at verses uh, 15 through 26. And then I would like to just pull a few thoughts from his, do a little bit of a character study. We know the story well. This here is now at the end of Joseph's life. And as we look at this, we want to take a look back on what made Joseph the man of God that he was. 
What were some foundational things and convictions that he held that made him the man that he was? In many ways, a type of Christ. If you look, if you look at there's analogy after analogy after analogy between Christ and Joseph here. And uh, it's a beautiful, beautiful picture of uh, a man of God here. But I'd like to start here in Genesis chapter 50 and uh, look starting at verse 15. Genesis 50, 50 verse 15. And when Joseph's brethren saw that their father was dead, they said, Joseph will peradventure hate us, and we will certainly requite us all the evil which we did unto him. And they sent a messenger unto Joseph, saying, Thy father did command before he died, saying, So shall ye say unto Joseph, Forgive, I pray thee now, the trespass of thy brethren and their sin. For they did unto thee evil, and now we pray thee, Forgive the trespass of thy servants of the God of my, thy father. And Joseph wept when they spake unto him. And his brethren also went and fell down before his face, and they said, Behold, we be thy servants. And Joseph said unto them, Fear not, for am I in the place of God? But as for you, ye thought evil against me. But God meant it unto good, to bring to pass as it is to this day, to save much people alive. Now therefore, fear ye not. I will nourish you and your little ones. And he comforted them and spake kindly unto them. And Joseph dwelt in Egypt, he and his father's house, and Joseph lived a hundred and ten years. And Joseph saw Ephraim's children of the third generation, the children also of Maker, the son of Manasseh, were brought upon Joseph's knees. And Joseph said unto his brethren, I die, and God will surely visit you and bring you out of this land into the land which he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. And Joseph took an oath of the children of Israel, saying, God will surely visit you. And ye shall carry up my bones from hence. So Joseph died, being a hundred and ten years old, and they embalmed him, and he was put in a coffin in Egypt. I find it fascinating how we look at the book of Genesis, how it starts with creation and ends in a coffin. And sandwiched in between these 50 chapters is our legacy as the, of, of, of the human race. We see the creation of everything where God spoke it into existence. We see the first man. We see the first woman. We see the first sin. We see the first child. We see the first murder. We see the first polygamist. We see the first time that men and women raised their fist in God's face and God came and destroyed that whole world with a flood. And then it, and very quickly afterwards, it's seen the people forgot about it and they raised that tower to themselves. Let's make a name for ourselves. And God had to come near and scatter them across the, the face of the earth by changing their language. But then you see this story turn. It's about chapter 11. Then about chapter 12, you see a switch. And you see that the story of Genesis following the life of a family by the name of Abraham. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph. And then the whole biblical account from there is built on that. And now here we are in the New Testament with Christ being the one who has fulfilled all these things. But if you ever get to read through the book of Genesis, it's a fascinating passage on family, on the home, on on the, the, really the, some of the deepest emotions that people can wrestle through. 
You see it all right here in the book of Genesis. And Abraham and Jacob and Joseph are probably given the most um, time. Each one has about 12 to 13 chapters given to each of them. Isaac was given a little bit of time, but mostly it's looking at the life of Abraham, the life of Jacob, and then the life of Joseph here. But as we look at this story of Joseph, I'd like to look at a couple of convictions that he had that I think helped him become the man that he was. I forget who it was. I think maybe it was Ernie, perhaps, was talking about the seasons of life, or somebody was talking about the seasons of life here recently in maybe one of the devotions. You know, we all go through seasons of life, different seasons of life that we face. Well, I'd like to look at some seasons of life that Joseph's going to face and look at some of the convictions that he puts in his life as he navigates through. And the first one I'd like to give you is this, is that Joseph grounded his belief in his season of temptation. He grounded his belief in his season of temptation. You all know the story well. Joseph goes down there, is is put into slavery by his brothers, and he ends up in this house of Potiphar, one of the great leaders of Egypt. And he's quickly lifted up to a pretty high place in the home. He becomes second to Potiphar himself. And the Bible says that Joseph was a good-looking man. And Potiphar's wife looks on him and begins to try to draw him into a relationship that was not godly at all. You know, it's interesting that many times people fall when they're most successful in life. You ever think about that? And many times when a person is successful in life is when they fall into sin. When you become very successful in life, you have money, you have prestige, you have power. You have the ability to get a lot of what you want. And I think that's perhaps why we can see many people in high places of power fall morally. You have the power, you have the prestige, you have the name, you have the money. You can buy a lot of pleasure in life. You can get what you want. I forget who it was. One of the speakers I heard was talking about the Chinese church. As they began to become financially set in life, he said, they should, they, the greater fear in life is not persecution, it is now affluence, he said. But when you have power and fame and money, it's easy to fall into temptation much quicker than when life maybe doesn't always go quite like you wish because you don't need God anymore. Well, here this man Joseph was, and you know, even as a preacher myself, I, I look at my life, and I would remember as a young man, I know I, you always hear these things, but what I'm amazed as I go through my life, just because I can stand up here and preach this stuff, and I can say the right thing, temptation still stalks at your door. And I think as life becomes, maybe goes well for me in some things, there are temptations that come along that I have never faced before 
because of it. But here is Joseph, and he is now being faced with temptation that many people have failed at. But there is a conviction that he has for himself that he will not cross this. When sin comes to us, it can easily be rationalized away. I deserve this. Everyone else is doing it. What does it really matter? This is just who I am. I find it interesting, in the Bible, there are three times that we hear the devil speaking. There are three times the devil speaks in the Bible. The first one we hear him speaking is in the Garden of Eden. And in this instance, he is trying to get man to doubt God. He said, hath God said? Hath God said? Are his ways really that good? Does he know what he's really talking about? when he tells me not to do this so-and-so. Don't eat of the fruit. I think too many times we can look at the commandments of God as being painful. Like, this is, why do we need to do this stuff? This, this is difficult and painful. But God has given these things really for our good. He gives us this, his word, it's for our good. They are yay, yay, not nay, nay, the Bible says. His commandments are yes, yes. And to learn to begin to understand that the, the commandments that God has given to us are for our good and for our, our pleasure, really. We're going to find the greatest pleasure and fulfillment in doing God's will. That's what Jesus said. He said, I have meat that you know not of. It is doing the will of God. He said, this is where my greatest fulfillment in life is in doing the will of God and living in obedience to him. But the devil comes to us and tries to begin to get us to doubt. Hath God said, is this really the best way? Is this really the best way to do life? And so we see him coming first to man and trying to get him to doubt God. But the second time you see him speaking is in the book of Job. And in this instance, the devil is trying to get God to doubt man. He's trying to get the God to doubt man. He said, look at your servant Job. The only reason he loves you is because you blessed him. You take that from him and he will curse you to your face. And God said, all right. You do what you want with him. Just don't take his life. And you know what? I am sure... Job had no idea what was going to happen that day. And when those things came and the things came and the things came, one after the next, one after the next, and Job is sitting there, naked I came out into this world, and naked will I leave. Blessed be the name of the Lord. What a response. Who does that? To lose everything and then become covered in boils and your wife turns against you. And he says, Though I slay me, yet shall I live, for I know my Redeemer liveth. What a response. But here it was, Satan came to try to get God to doubt man. But the third time he speaks now is in the New Testament, and he's facing the God-man, Jesus Christ. 100% God, 100% man. Very man of very man, very God of very God is how the quote goes. And he comes to him and says, why don't you jump? Jump, and the angels will catch you. 
And Jesus says, it is written. It is written. Thou shalt not tempt the Lord thy God. Do you know what it means to tempt the Lord thy God? What does that mean? It means to test him. He says, we do not test the Lord thy God. It says, that means, we, it's what, what it means is this, is we say, how far can I go? How far can I go? How far can I go before God says, nope, and you're done. That's what it means to test him. How, far, how much can I do? How much can I do? How much sin can I get away with before God says, that's enough. And Jesus says, it is written, thou shalt not tempt the Lord thy God. It is written, it is written, it is written. Every temptation that comes to us is a lie. And that is why the, the, David says, Thy heard have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. As these temptations come, they must re recognize that they are always a lie. And we must go against it with God's word. Well, I like what Joseph does here. He lets no room for rationalizing away sin. Remember what he says there, Potiphar's wife tried to get him to come in here, and Joseph says to her, your husband, my master, trusts me. He trusts me. How could I break this trust and do this? But he says, he says how could I do this great sin against God? He adds that higher accountability to it all. He adds that higher accountability to all, to, to it all. You see, in that culture, those kind of things happened all the time. And Potiphar's wife could have said, well, my husband is okay with this. But Joseph would have said, there's still God. There's still God. And I just ask you tonight... Do you recognize your accountability before God? We have an accountability with each other, but sometimes our friends can talk us into things maybe. But do we recognize our accountability before God? I was talking with one of you guys here recently about when you were young and being with your buddies and your buddies want to go off and do something and you said, I'm not going to do it. I can't. That's pretty tough. I know. That's pretty tough. And to recognize your accountability before God himself. This is what Joseph recognized. He recognized his accountability before God, that our sin is really against him. I heard a little story here recently about a minister. He was actually a minister with the Billy Graham Crusades a number of years ago. And it, the story was shared to another preacher who shared it in his sermon. Is where I heard it. And he told, he told the story that he was doing a crusade in uh, Paris, France, one, one week. And he said one night he was coming home after the meetings were over and he was heading back in the taxi and he was driving through the city that night and the allurements of the city were out there, the, the flashing lights and the, the, the temptations of the night. And as he got back to his hotel room, he... Was his, said his heart was racing with all he had seen as the temptations were there, pulling him out, pulling him out. He said, I didn't know what I was going to do. He said, I did the only thing I could think to do, and I went to my hotel, hotel room, took the key, locked the door, walked over to the window, and threw it out into the night. He said, I was locked in for the night. He said, I didn't know what I was going to do if there was going to be a fire, but I had to do something about the fire that was burning in my heart.
I like a man like that. I respect him. I wonder if he got his inspiration from Joseph here. He had to do something about the fire that was raging in his heart. I would trust any man or woman who lives a life like that. Recognizing their accountability is above themselves, it is to God. And someday I'm going to stand and give an account for who I am and what I've done. And so I give you this, the first conviction that I give you is this, is that he grounded his belief in his season of temptation. There are two great questions that I think we have to answer, and the, probably the most difficult questions are this. Does God exist? And has God spoken? Does God really exist? Do you believe that? And then the second question we're going to have to answer is, has God spoken and told us how we are meant to live? These are the questions that Joseph had to answer. And he grounded his belief in that very fact in his season of temptation. The second one I would give you is this, is that he grounded his peace in his season of pain. He grounded his peace in his season of pain. You look at the life of Joseph here and his family Talk about a dysfunctional home at best. You look at the brokenness that comes in this home. There was, there was deception. There was murder. There was rape. There was favoritism. The, with, uh, with his sister Dinah that happened there, then his brothers went in and destroyed that whole town. They deceived their dad. They end up, then they end up selling Joseph into slavery. I mean... Think about that, guys. Sold in the slavery by my brothers. Yep, I was looking to do that. Thank you very much. Mom died when he was a young man. Sold into slavery, goes down to Egypt, does the right thing with Potiphar's wife, gets falsely accused for it, gets thrown into prison, then takes, helps those guys out with their dreams, and the guys forget about him. You talk about a life that you would begin to wonder, what kind of God am I worshiping anyway here? What's going on? If anybody would want to play a victim, it would be Joseph. But he makes a tremendous statement here that I think gives us a glimpse into where his heart was in the midst of all this when he says to his brothers, and he cries, he says, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. See, You know, we all go through difficulties in life. And I don't know, maybe what you face sometimes, you think, I did everything right. Why did these things happen to me? I've been doing, I've been, I thought I was doing what's right, and stuff just doesn't seem to be working out. Or get falsely accused for something or whatever, and you think, is this what it is? What's the point? Someone said this, virtue in distress and vice in triumph makes atheists out of men. Virtue in, in, in distress and, and uh, vice in triumph make atheists out of men. I don't know if you ever felt this way in life. I'm sure you did or you possibly will and you start, start to wonder, is this what, it's, what it is? Is this how it is? But he makes that tremendous statement God has meant it for good. 
to the saving of many souls this day. None of these things would have happened except God allowed them to happen. And he trusted him through that. You go through this. I go through this. You have. I have. We will go through it. You know it's probably a lot easier to preach about this stuff than to actually go through it. You can come up with all kinds of wonderful platitudes, you know, talking about pain and suffering. But another thing to go through it. I remember when I was 13 years old, I was the first time that I was confronted with death in a real way that I could remember. It was when one of my best friends died in a car accident. Her name was Heather Diefenbach. She would have been a niece to Dale and Marianne, if you know who that is. It would be a niece, and her parents would be David and Marie Diefenbach. And we were, we were best friends with them. We were with them quite often, not every weekend, but almost every weekend. So to give you an idea of how close of friends we were, we did quite a bit together. And I remember it was Easter morning, and... Uh, we were actually having communion that, that morning at our church, and we had a freak snow that came in our area. And uh, Dave and Marie were headed to church that morning, and as they were driving along, they hit a, a patch of, of snow and ice, and that just whipped them right into the side of a hill and rolled the van over. And all of the, everyone flew out of this van, and and the, uh, the van came to rest actually on top of Marie, the mother. Um, she was underneath the back of it against the, the exhaust pipe. On top of her, her waist, it, it crushed her hips, and it burned a huge scar on her back from the exhaust pipe. She was stuck under there for about 45 minutes. And Dave at the time did not realize what had happened with her, her da his daughter Heather. It had actually rolled over top of her. And she was still alive yet. He, she came to him and tell, told her that he was hurt, she was hurting. And so he said, just crawl back into the van and wait there until I can get help because it was snowing and cold. And here are the internal injuries that she had. She, she ended up succumbing to him there in the van. And my family was not at church that morning. We actually, I was singing in a children's chorale um, with Mennonite Heritage Chorale. And we were having a children's program with that. And so I was singing in that and we were not at church that morning, and we got the call after our first program, and uh, I was actually leaving with some of my friends in another van, and my parents were going to come behind us and, and meet us at the next program. And I remember as we were leaving there, the church we, we, we sang at, my dad came running up behind our van, and uh, the uh, the, the dad of the, my buddy said, hey, I think you're, you must have forgotten something. You're, I see your dad's running. So we turned around and looked, and my dad came running up. And he reached, I remember him reaching. He pulled open the door. Tears coming down his face. And he said, Dave and Marie were in an accident, and Heather died. I was 13 years old. And those are the kind of things you don't forget too quickly in life. And so I jumped out quick and jumped in with mom and dad, and we headed toward the hospital and all the questions were coming, what happened, what happened, and we found out how the van rolled over, and, and uh, Marie had been stuck there underneath this van, and Dave was there trying to pick this up off of her, and, it, and the oldest daughter, Heidi, ran down and was able to get a, 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 a tractor from the neighbor to pick up the van and to get, get Marie out. And we got, I remember getting to the hospital there, and we walked in there trying to figure out where they are, and we 
finally found out they were down this one hallway. And I remember as we walked down this hallway, I saw, we saw Dave at the other end. And he saw us, and he came walking toward us, sort of stumbling, and he stopped about three feet from my dad, and then just fell forward, threw his hands around my dad's neck, and began sobbing uncontrollably. He kept saying, I hope I was a good dad to her. I hope I was a good dad to her. You know, as a little boy, again, you watch this. You never, you don't, when you see old men cry, there's something about that that does something to you. You never forget this kind of thing. But as we got done there with Dave, they said, let's go in to see Marie. And I remember we walked into this hospital room with them. Marie saw us walk in. She had months ahead of her of skin grafting and having her pelvis surgically redone and just lost her daughter on an instant. And as we walked into this hospital room, she sat up a little bit, looked at my mom, and the first thing she said was this, God is still good. God is still good. You know, I don't know. It was difficult for Dave and Marie, I know that, as we walked through with them the next couple of months. But I don't know how else a person gets through a thing like that without trusting in the unchanging character of God. I don't know how else we do it. My God is good. And to be able to trust Him in that, no matter what happens, I trust that He is good. To trust in the unchanging character of God. We can have all the platitudes, you know, and read all the wonderful sayings. But I think it ultimately comes down to that very thing. God, I trust you that you're good. To trust in His character. This is the same thing that Jesus told John the Baptist. When John the Baptist was in the prison there and he, was, he is now beginning to doubt himself what is going on. And he says, he talks to his disciples said, go talk to Jesus and ask him, are you really the one? This don't seem to make any sense to me. What I've been preaching about, you coming as a conqueror and a um, baptizing with fire and here I'm seeing, I don't see that. Where is your kingdom that's supposed to be coming? And Jesus says to them, Go back and tell John what you see. As the, the sight of receiving their blind, the, and the, the blind are seeing them receiving the sight, and the deaf are, deaf are speaking in all this. And then he says this, tell him this, blessed are they, do not stumble at me. Do not stumble at me. Even when I don't understand, Lord, to trust him. He grounded his belief in his season of pain. There's a little poem that I learned in school. Didn't like it then, but I do now. It's a, it's a poem called This Present Crisis, and I'm not going to quote the whole thing, but there's a couple of lines in there that I've always I come to really love. It goes like this. Once to every man and nation comes a moment to decide in the strife of truth with falsehood for the good or evil side. Some great cause, some great decision, offering each the bloom or blight, and the choice goes by forever, twixt that darkness and that light. And it goes on to say this, truth forever on the scaffold, wrong forever on the throne, but it's a scaffold that sways the future, and behind the dim unknown standeth God within the shadows, keeping watch above his own. Truth on the scaffold, 
Wrong's always on the throne, it seems like, but it's a scaffold that's going to sway the future. And behind the dim unknown standeth God within the shadows, keeping watch above his own. Second, 1 Peter 4.19 says this. 1 Peter 4.19 says this. <clears throat> I can find it here. It says that we are to trust ourselves as, when we suffer for well-doing. 1 Peter 4.19, it says this. Wherefore, let them that suffer according to the will of God commit the keeping of their souls to him in well-doing as unto a faithful creator. No matter what comes, I'm going to commit myself to him in well-doing to do what is right and as commit myself to him as a faithful creator. This was Joseph's conviction, I believe, is that he grounded his peace in his season of pain by trusting in the unchanging character of God. God is still good. God is still good. You meant it for evil, but God has meant it for good. And thirdly, I would give you this. He was generous and forgiving in his season of power. He was generous and forgiving in his season of power. Can you imagine what it would have been like for Joseph as he stood in that marketplace that day and saw his ten brothers walk in there? Imagine that. All those guys that had hurt him so much all those years ago, and now he's in the place of power. He could have taken those boys out so fast. There will be times that you and I will come in the place of power. And sometimes the opportunity is there to sort of get back at those who did us wrong. This was the story of Joseph. But Joseph had learned the power of forgiveness. He learned the power of forgiveness. He was a completely free man. You know, I can think back sometimes on things that happen in life, and I'm sure you can too, and some of the hurts that come in life, it does. But Jesus says offenses will come. It's going to be a part of life. It happens to all of us. And he says, woe to them through whom they come. But it's going to be a part of life. The offenses are going to come in life. And you know it's sort of fun to be angry, isn't it? I sort of enjoyed it for a while, I'll tell you. And thinking of what people do to me and I can get Self-righteous indignation against these people, you know. But after a while, I found out that was no fun at all. And I got tired of being angry. I remember this one time. There was a man that I was not getting along with. We had served in a certain project there for a while, and we did not hit it off very well at all. And it sort of ended, actually quite poorly, I would say, through the whole operation that happened man that went to my church. And I remember going home from that and just not sure what to do or what to do. And I just, I was eaten up inside. 
And I remember I got to church that Sunday and I saw him sitting there and I was like, and God said to me, Kevin, I want you to walk over there and give him the holy kiss. (laughs) No. (laughs) All right. And so I walked up to him and it was just a couple of days, about a week before we had just come back from where we were at. And I walked up to him and took his hand and I greeted him. I said, God bless you. And I'll tell you what, <laughs> the peace that came over me, over that, as I greeted a brother that we had butted heads pretty bad, I said, I bless you. And it was amazing to me, and now I see him, we're hugging, and he don't live in our area, he moved to a different location now, but sometimes I'll go and preach at their church, and every time he gives me a big hug, I said, Kevin, it's great to see you again. It's great to see you. But sometimes we can let this bitterness build and build and build. And just eats us up. But Joseph here had learned the power of forgiveness. And he forgave those that hurt him so badly. If there is somebody here that you have not forgiven, that person is still controlling you. Still controlling you. But Joseph had learned the blessing and the beauty of forgiveness. And you see the generosity of his spirit in his season of power. He gave them the land of Goshen. He gave them wagons to go back and get dad. He said, and he begins to weep when they said, dad says you need to forgive us. He said, well, I have, am I in the place of God? Am I God to exact revenge on somebody? We're not very good at revenge. We aren't. I've tried it. You always need to build big, Dig two graves, one for the guy you're going for and one for yourself. As always what happens. It always will come back and bite you. And Joseph recognized this very thing. And in many ways, he was just like our Lord who turned to those that harmed him and he said, Father, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. He was generous and forgiving in his season of power. Whenever it's in your power to do so, to forgive quickly and forgive quickly and to forgive completely. And what's amazing to me is this, is that as the Pharaoh looked at this man, Joseph, he said, there is no one like this in all my kingdom, for there is a man in whom the Spirit of God dwells. What an accolade to be given about somebody. There is no one like this I've ever met in all my kingdom, for there is a man in whom the Spirit of God dwells. You see, my friends, even a pagan can recognize a spirit-filled man. That beautiful, that beautiful. What a man this was. Grounding his belief in his season of temptation, grounding his peace in his season of pain, and being generous and forgiving in his season of power. Amy Carmichael wrote this little poem, and this, this I'll close. She said this, From prayer that asks that I may be, sheltered from winds that beat on thee, from fearing when I should aspire, from faltering when I should climb higher, from silken self, O captain free, thy soldier who would follow thee, from subtle love of softening things, from easy choices, weakenings, 
Not thus our spirits fortified, not this way went the crucified. From all that die in the Calvary, O Calvary, O Lamb of God, deliver me. Give me the love that leads the way, the faith that nothing can dismay, the hope no disappointments tire, the passion that will burn like fire. Let me not sink to be a clod, make me thy fuel, flame of God. Make me thy fuel, flame of God. Deliver me from myself, O God. Make me thy fuel, flame of God. Joseph was a man for all seasons in his responses because he was a man with sound reasons for his convictions. He was a man for all seasons in his responses because he was a man with sound reasons for his convictions. Grounding his belief in his season of temptation, grounding his peace in his season of pain, and being generous and forgiving in his season of power. And the Pharaoh looked at this man and said, there's no one like this in all my kingdom, for there is a man in whom the Spirit of God dwells. I would like to give you an invitation tonight. And perhaps as you look at your life, you say, Lord, that's not me. I'm not this kind of person. And Lord, I want to become that man. I want to be that man. I want to be your man, be your woman. I want to make that commitment here tonight. I'd like to give you an opportunity here tonight. If the Lord has spoken to you tonight or the last number of nights, he's been leading you to himself. As you can make that right and come to him and make that commitment to him tonight. We're going to sing a song, a couple of verses. And I'd like to just invite you that if God has spoken to you, that you would come and make that commitment to him tonight. What should we sing? All right. Hymns of the Church, number 739. And as we sing this and the Lord has spoken to you, I just invite you to come. Come quickly. Don't look at anybody else around you. This is between you and God between you and God, to make these things right. Shall we sing?
Thank you for your attention tonight. The invitation is always there. The Lord, like a gentle shepherd, is calling us to himself and to become that flame that God wants us to be for him. Tomorrow night, children, we'd like to have another children's meeting, so I invite you back for that, and we'll see once what we can come up with for that. So we invite you all back tomorrow night. Shall we stand for a word of prayer? Father in heaven, we thank you for the way you speak to us in such a gentle way, calling us to yourself. Thank you, Lord, for this life that you have put into your word of Joseph and the example he is to us. Help us, Lord, to learn to ground our beliefs, to ground our peace, and to become men that are generous and forgiving whenever it's in our power so that men can look and say, there is a man, there, there is a woman in whom the Spirit of God dwells. I pray that you be with each one of us as we go from this place. Bless us, Lord, as we go about our duties tomorrow. And we ask you to bring us back safely tomorrow, if it's not against your will, that we can continue to serve you until you call us home. And now the God of peace that brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep, through the blood of the everlasting covenant, make you perfect in every good work, to do his will, working in you which is well-pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Depart in peace.